Combustible, the MAFSI podcast, is produced by the Metro Atlanta Firefighters Conference, an all-volunteer, always-nonprofit group of firefighters training other firefighters. We invite you to visit our website at www.maffc.org or follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We must acknowledge the following sponsors without whom MAFSI couldn't exist. Scott Safety, Motorola, Delta Airlines, Georgia Fire and Rescue Supply, Blackman Mooring, 10-8 Fire Equipment, MES, Columbia Southern University, and Tempest Technology. Lastly, if you would like to make a tax-deductible donation and support our mission of building better firefighters, please find us on our GoFundMe page. The opinions expressed in this podcast are the participants' own and do not reflect the views of any organization the participant may be affiliated with, including but not limited to the Metro Atlanta Firefighters Conference and the Metro Atlanta Fire Officers Association. Welcome to Combustible, the MAFSI podcast. Um, our guest today is uh, Marty Green. Uh, your moderators are Bill Voorhees and Shane Dobson. Uh, my name is Bill Voorhees. I'm uh, a battalion chief here in Atlanta. And uh, Shane Dobson, our other moderator, is an assistant chief uh, with one of the major metropolitan departments in Atlanta. We're going to talk about that in just a second. But our guest today is a uh, recently retired assistant chief uh, from DeKalb County Fire Rescue, retired in January of 2016. Uh Hired on in 1988, which we realize is a little bit earlier than some of our listeners probably were born. Did uh, about 28 years and uh, retired early with uh, a crude leave that he had not used. Um, in that time, was assigned to some of the busiest uh, fire stations in uh, DeKalb County, which by default made them the busiest stations in the southeast, if not the nation at the time. Uh, a brief overview of his career, spent uh, nine years as a firefighter, seven years as a driver engineer, two years as a captain uh, running a station, seven years as a battalion chief, and uh, two years as an assistant chief. And for anybody who's not familiar with the metro Atlanta area, DeKalb County is uh, roughly 170-something square miles. <laughs> Uh, we have a population of about, currently a population of about 750,000. Uh, DeKalb County Fire Rescue is a 26-station uh, fire department serving those people with an annual call volume in the area of about 100,000 calls per year, which uh, when Chief Green started in 1988, the annual call volume was around 30,000, so about a, a third of what it is today. Uh, in the time that Chief Green was with the department, he uh, was very involved with uh, testing equipment. Uh, PPE uh, was uh, led the effort for uh, moving the department in a new direction with SCBA a few years ago, and also with uh, regards to attack hose, inch and three quarter hose, and uh, two and a half flow rates. Uh, if any of you have fortunate enough to take his class at MAFSI or uh, somewhere else. There's a, a class specifically about those changes. Um, he also was instrumental in teaching uh, up-and-coming officers and new officers within DeKalb County Fire Rescue uh, over those years. So welcome Chief Green. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Uh, Shane, you want to add anything before we... Nope. Anything about you? No? Nope. I'm Shane. 
Happy to be here. Shane's not going to say it. Shane was actually, and and here's the reveal. You know, I say at the beginning <laughs> that we're not uh, that we're affiliated with a Metro Atlanta Fire Department, and we usually do try and avoid naming the department. But uh, in the interest of being uh, fair to everybody uh, that doesn't know, uh, Shane and I both work for DeKalb Fire Rescue and were uh, directly reported to uh, Marty during those years as assistant chiefs. Oh, yes, we did. And Shane... <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad it's over with, too. <laughs> Shane recently was promoted to assistant chief and took uh, Marty's took Marty's place on C-shift <clears throat> in DeKalb. Against my advice to <laughs> the current administration in DeKalb. Hey, um... So, we always start these with a jumping off point, and we really don't know where it's going to go. But um, something that I wanted to talk to you about, and you had mentioned this in a conversation that we had uh, over lunch a couple of weeks ago, and that was a difference that you recognized over your 30-year career between how other firefighters... I don't want to say dealt with, but how other firefighters looked at you as Marty Green, the firefighter, and then Marty Green, the assistant chief, and that that yeah, it's a it's a huge difference between where you start as a as a rookie, and then if you're fortunate enough to to be promoted to where you would end up as a chief officer, the the difference is huge, and the 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 way you grow over the years. Um, makes what's valuable to a young firefighter probably something that's not as valuable or valuable at all to a chief. And I can't think of any other way to describe it other than as a young firefighter, you know, you're, you're gauged by how much heat you can take, how much your gear is burned up. Uh, and then by the time you're done, you ask the question, why is your gear burned up? Uh, that's the simplest way that I can put that. Um, from is a, it one of those where you're you're worried that the perceptions out there that the assistant chief Marty Green wouldn't allow what firefighter Marty Green did? No, that's, I think that's pretty accurate. The you know young Marty wouldn't work or wouldn't care for uh, Chief Marty's tactics or or uh, how he handled things. He would he would basically be a hypocrite. Uh, but I can look back and then only age can give you, I, you know, I joke about, you know, not being very smart, but the years is what makes the wisdom. So I always like to tell things of stupid stories I did when I was young and stuff I wouldn't allow people to do as a chief officer. So yeah, but that's part of it. I think you, you, you grow up, you mature, uh, you, you think, you know, when you dive out the window from the flashover and your leather helmet's dropped around your ears, you think it's great. As a chief officer, that's not great. That's that's a near miss. So you question them as you get older. But as a young firefighter, that's you know you can't wait for the next fire. You know, so, so was that a was that change in how you viewed those things? Was that almost an overnight in your career or was it a very gradual change as you progressed through the ranks? The huge change for me was is, and as, as firefighter, you know, most of the departments you'll, you'll step up above when the captain's off, you might be in charge of the fire station that day. <clears throat> and you think it's a huge difference. When I was a driver engineer, I was actually 
able, my, my captain was the acting battalion chief, so I was actually running a fire station for a while. And, you know, so when I made captain, I thought, you know, there's going to be no change. Um, I've been running a fire station. There's going to be no difference. Well, it's actually like a light switch for me because on the first night I was a captain, my battalion chief called about 1145 at night and woke me up and, and basically said, I need this paperwork. I can't even remember what the paperwork was about. And I remembered saying, yeah, chief, I'll get right on it. Laughing, hanging up the phone, laughing. I went back and got in bed. <laughs> so I was a firefighter, Marty. Still, I laid there. <laughs> exactly. I was still a firefighter. So I laid there in bed for about five minutes, staring at the ceiling. And I thought, no matter how ridiculous I think this is, I got up and did it. Um, I, I don't know why that actual position changed. Uh, it wasn't that the duties were that much different. It just fell on me. It was there. So it was a lot of responsibility. It just wasn't admin work, but. Uh, I can tell you the story this way. When, when I enjoyed some really good support for, from some really great firefighters. So when I was promoted to captain and, you know, six months later, I'm filling in for the battalion chief, which is another huge jump. Um, I was really concerned at that point because the immature Marty uh, was still in there uh, that People would expect, you know, I was getting comments like, oh, yeah, Marty's on the car today. He's, no. He'll let us fight fire. Oh, right. man, you know, right. we, we got to right. get that big apartment. We got a free fire. pass today. Yeah, we got a free pass. We're going to go ape crazy. You know, we're going to, you know, everything we go, we're going to be busting down doors. And I was thinking to myself, you know, wow, this is this is more pressure than I felt because, you know, I, I care about these people. I'm, I'm not just going to let them go crazy, even despite all the dumb stuff I've done in my career. And so finally, after those comments and after a couple of shifts of uh, filling in on the battalion car, I was actually at dinner at Station 20, and I said, you know, I, everybody got quiet. I said, I, you know, I need, I need y'all to listen to me. I love you guys. I appreciate the fact that you're excited that I'm on the car. I said, but if I ask you to back out of something, you know, you can get mad at me when you come out, but I need you to back out. Right. You know, I, I, I'm not in a, I don't, I don't want to get you guys hurt. I appreciate the trust you have. And. And the fact that you're excited that I'm on the car. And, you know, that, that was kind of the end of that conversation. But what I can tell you is what I thought would be the hardest thing to do as a chief officer was pull people out. It's the easiest decision you make. It absolutely right. is the easiest decision as an instant commander to assess something and go, you know, this isn't right. You know, <clears throat> everybody out. And I thought it would be the hardest decision to make. It was the easiest. Right. Shane? Um Actually, I got a question for you, and and Bill, I didn't run this by you first, so I hope this doesn't take this somewhere. And and I think part of the, you know, I've heard you, we've had this conversation, I've heard you say, you know, the Chief Marty versus the old Marty. Is it is it something that you worried about from, I, let me back up, because I'm totally messing this up. I, I think about it from when I was a captain, right? And I think about doing some of those things. And I feel like, you know what, I'm kind of in control of what I'm doing with my crew. <clears throat> then you transition into chief officers, and that control's not quite there anymore. You're, it's a little more trusting, kind of like I'm trusting you to do whatever that is to do. Mm -hmm. Was that a hard part for you on what I mean was it lack of control is where that comes from or was it I'm not sure if I'm asking the right question. well I don't, I don't know I can tell you you know as a firefighter you're 
uh, as a young firefighter, you're totally wrapped up in what you're doing. It doesn't matter what anybody else right. is doing. As a captain, then you've got two or three people or four people on your crew, and, and you have to be concerned about what they're doing. So the jump in each rank is is exponential. Then to 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 run a uh, apartment fire or a business fire and be responsible for five, six, or seven crews. Um, there's a, and I'm not even sure I'm answering your question now, but um, I'm not sure there was a question. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, um, you know, that's if you could if you could plug the knowledge into the young firefighters, and, and part of the conversation that Bill and I had over lunch was, and it's uh, with already respect to, to all the people that, that uh, I worked with, as my career, especially towards the end, went on, I probably, probably became less popular with the Jakes and the firefighters of DeKalb County. And it wasn't that I lost any nerve as far as um, allowing people on fire scenes to do things that were dangerous. Hell, it's a pretty dangerous job. But it's almost like I, I was becoming even more aware of what was at stake. Um, Good. You know, part of our, uh, everybody's mission statement, if you want to call it that, basically says to the effect of protecting property. And that is an important part of the job. You know, nobody's mission statement says uh, protect lives and let everything else burn to the ground. Right. Um, it is an important part of the job, but I guess the way to say it is as I got older and right towards the end of my career, it was easier to assess something and go, you know, why, what is the purpose of this? Why do we have seven crews committed to the interior of this, you know, tire shop that, uh, really has no value? You know, why are, why are we in a, a, um, an old dilapidated bar at five o'clock in the morning, with uh, you know seventy-five percent involvement, and we're going to save one corner of something that's going to be torn down. It's not popular with firefighters to say that, but as I got closer to the end of my career, you really buy into that. You know, it's and not you, worth it. Do you end up? I found myself um, <clears throat> kind of falling prey to the idea sometimes on some of these buildings that. From the way that the person who owns this building or is occupying this building has basically set the stage with, they've got way too much stuff in it, it's packed to the ceilings, they block the exits, they're not complying with our, you know, hey, we, we really need you to clear these exits. They don't care about firefighters. Well, that's another example of maturing because, you know, back in the day we inspected businesses and, you know, I probably shouldn't say, but. I wasn't going to write anybody up. If they wanted to burn their business down. I was just hoping right. I was on duty when it went up caught fire. <laughs> you know, so, uh, you know, we writing somebody up, man, that wasn't right. going to happen. Right. Um, well, that means we tried the, to follow up too. So that was a whole different time. Well, one of, the, one of the last calls I ran as an assistant chief, we ended up with a, a, a very small fire at a Dollar General. Oops, I probably shouldn't have said Dollar General, but we ended up with a very small fire there, and housekeeping was a disaster. Right. And I was compelled because it was ultimately could be a firefighter killer, as well as civilians. I was compelled to call the fire marshal's office. Right. 15 years, 20 years ago, 
Wouldn't, right. wouldn't have worried about it. Well, when it catches on fire, I hope we're on duty. Right. Let's. Um. I want to go back to 1988. Okay, because like I said, this is years before some of our listeners were born. What are some of the things that stick out in your mind that are different about when you joined uh, the fire fire department and how it is today? I mean, you know. Peer pressure, um, I basically was not allowed to talk for six months. <laughs> when I did talk, I was screamed at, shut up, Marty. So, I mean, it was, it was a whole different time. That doesn't make that right. I'm not saying that was right, and I'm not saying that's what it should be today. That's just one example. From firefighting standpoint, um, I mean, you guys were we still had, riding on the tailboard of the truck at that we, time, right? We did still ride on the tailboard, which was fantastic. I do miss that. Um, you know, when it's... 18 degrees outside and you're soaking wet it's not exactly <laughs> fun but it's, it's part of being a firefighter and you look back at those times and it's fantastic but um you know i, I tell people in aoic class in, in 1988 if we pulled up on a house fire we pulled a 200 foot pre-connect now in, in the cab we were fortunate in one aspect that the vast majority of our homes businesses apartments were very accessible and a 200 foot pre-connect was lengthwise only lengthwise was probably sufficient but if we pulled up on a house fire we pulled an inch and three-quarter pre-connect if we pulled up on an apartment fire we pulled an inch and three-quarter pre-connect right. if we pulled up on a warehouse fire we pulled an inch and three-quarter pre-connect a lot of times we went in and we got our asses kicked and uh, then we thought you know uh, well what happened you know, right. and oh, we lost that one. And, and, you know, probably some of the older guys that are listening are probably wanting to come through the, uh, the radio and, and yell at me right now. Uh, that's my recollection of it. We had some great all-time classic firefighters back then. I'm not taking anything away from them. Um, but we didn't have the, the GPMs required for, for the size of the fires. I will say this, that flashover back then was not something that we saw very often. And when it did happen... Um, it was kind of news around the county. Hey, did you hear this engine company or this, this, these crews went on this fire and it flashed over. Uh, I can remember pulling up on apartments, several apartments, several house fires and, um, and having heavy smoke, uh, entering through the front door. If that's where we did, uh, wherever it was appropriate and, and literally crawling in in high heat conditions and finding a large pile of smoldering embers right and just cracking the nozzle and putting out the pile of embers and and it's it's got everything to do with what's on fire today and the plastics and the use of uh, different materials than than from the 70s and 80s so uh, that was that was one of the major differences what um what ended up bringing you you had a background in construction you uh not only you were raised in DeKalb County is that right that's correct right raised in DeKalb County built a lot of homes on uh, the south end, Cab County, working Correct. for various construction crews, and then what? What brings you to the fire service? I actually needed a job. Needed a yeah. job with some benefits. Uh, believe it or not, it didn't pay very much back then either. Um, the difference was we got you know we were good economic times, so we got uh, we were pretty consistent getting raises. Um, but yeah, never didn't didn't dream of uh, riding a red fire truck. None of that. Needed a job and applied and uh, was fortunate enough to get hired. 
uh, within uh, while I was still in the fire academy, just totally ate it up, just fell in love with it, right. and just you know, and you always say it gets in your blood, and you know, you can you can say you're a firefighter and you can wear the badge, but if if, if it doesn't get in your blood, if you're not if you're not doing the classes, if you're not trying to be a good firefighter, and I don't want to say you know, it's probably a no-no to say you, you wish for a fire uh, because every time, you know, every time somebody has a fire, right. it's, it's, you know, it's, it's the same old story. You know, you don't want anybody hurt, but, but there's also gonna that happen, if it's going to happen, it happens yeah. while I'm working in yeah. my territory. Right, and absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's what should be, in my opinion, that's what should be the attitude of every firefighter. They should go to work every day and assume that they're going to have a fire somewhere in their immediate. We not were, that you're not going to. We were just talking about we this last night. We were talking about this last I mean, night. Absolutely. I think that's, um, and we'll go down this road for just a minute, I think that's possibly part of some of the issues we see today is, you know, every day, and I've been guilty of this, So, but every day you come to work and every day the bell rings and every time it rings, you need to expect there to actually be burning instead of the constant discrediting every moment of the call. Oh, sure. it come out as this. Oh, there's no way that's anything. There's right. no way it's that. There's well, no way it's this. Absolutely. Put all, you on your heels. Yeah, we've all got our stories about, you know, the, the fire alarm, and you turn the corner and there's, there's smoke. It's not out. a fire alarm. Well, it right. is, but. Right. But does it, and what we were talking about last night, Shane and I were talking over the phone, uh, does it take having one of those moments where you do get knocked back and you go, holy, you know, I, I wasn't That's an important this. part of it. You know, there's probably stories I shouldn't tell, but I will tell this one. I was a driver engineer on, on uh, Engine 7, and we were on a bit of a dry spell as far as fires went. So we caught mm -hmm. a... Like a week. Like, I was going to say, Actually, it, it might have been a little longer than that. <laughs> So we would actually, you know, as dumb as this sounds, we would actually dare the fire gods. And so right. we'd get a signal three, and we just wouldn't put our gear on. Just so trying to provoke it. One night, exactly. <laughs> so we get a signal three at a residence and turn the corner. There's the glow. There's the family out in the yard. And, and nobody so ready. A, a great firefighting captain, of course, long retired. Uh, he, uh... He pulls the old booster reel and <laughs> with no gear on, while crawls into the front door while the rest of us are putting our gear on. Um, and uh, and we called for help. Told him we had a actual fire. Which, talk about you talked about back at the beginning of your career. How many trucks are you getting on a fire back at the beginning of your career? What got me south side into cab was I got sick and tired of listening to the radio. Um, and here in engine six, engine seven, ladder 20, battalion three. Uh, it's three engines in a truck back then. And if you called for help, it was all over the county. Yes. Right. Signal 14, you know, that was the call for help. It was all over the county. And, you know, it wasn't right. I'm not saying that that was right. And I'm right. not saying we were manly manly men back then and everybody today's not. That's not my point. As a matter of fact, let me, let me say something about that. Again, my older buddies are going to come tell me I'm crazy. Uh, you know, one of the sayings of we don't fight fire like we used to and things aren't on fire like they were, uh, I, I think that's very inaccurate. And I think we have some outstanding firefighters today, just incredible people with incredible capabilities, just like we did back then. Right. So any, any thoughts of, you know, 
today's firefighters are not what they used to be. I find that completely inaccurate. Well, and you are, you know, I think there's a romantic side to uh, some of the firefighters in, in the fire service, probably more than they would like to admit, especially if I use the word romantic, that looks at the fire service as a calling because it makes us feel good. It, this was a calling. They needed me, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, but you're an example of somebody who just fell into it and then turned out, and I'm not blowing smoke up your skirt. You, you know this, but... He's not wearing a skirt. Yeah, <laughs> but, you know... You fell into it and turned into everything that we would want out of a firefighter or an officer or, I mean, all of it was a perfect fit. And how that happened, how those things came to be, you know, I, I mean, and who knows how many, uh, how many people are better off for it. You know, I know I am. Um, just the fact that you were there to, you know, yeah. be that person. I really, I really don't know. I think there's a question there. It's a, it's a really great question. I don't know how, and I appreciate you saying all those kind of words, but you know, you pay me later. I've got warts just like everybody else. <laughs> um, you know, to, to say whatever I achieved, um, I had some really great people that I looked up to and, I also learned from people I didn't want to be. So I, I always joke, I'm not smart enough to be myself. I'm going to try to be somebody else. Right. Um, what's the saying about imitation is... Sincere form of flattery. There you go. So I would look at somebody and say, that's who I want to be. And I could name right. 50 names right now. So whatever I ended up being when I retired was not something that I dreamed of. I'm a piece of, you know, Steve Andrews. I'd like to be a piece of him. Right. Uh, Mike Sewell, people like this, uh, just great firemen. So I would try to take a little bit of each one of those and, and try to just imitate it. Right. And, and that's what all of us were doing. Yeah. I mean, look at what you don't like and go, that's what I don't want to be. Right. And we've all had those those people in our careers. So I, I couldn't write a book, how to be how to, how to get hired as a firefighter, and then and really succeed. end up and succeed. I couldn't write that book. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, couldn't do it. So, anyway. be a firefighter and succeed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow, a novel concept. Well, I didn't want to say that. Then you talked about building houses and construction, and that's the one thing that helped me more in my fire career, as far as actually being a competent firefighter, was my knowledge of building construction. It's huge. Don't ever underestimate it. Uh, as a matter of fact, I look at it now. If you're hired as a firefighter and you have no knowledge of how a house or apartment or a business right. is put together, you're actually a few steps behind. Find a good construction class. Get your crew out. Walk through stuff under construction and look and see how fire reacts and moves in a certain type of building. Very right. important. No, it's. I think it's critical getting out and, uh, you know, when you into Cab County at least, and I'm sure it's like this other places. That's not Marty whining. That's no. my dog. <laughs> um, <laughs> she, apparently she's not happy that she's part, not part of the cast. conversation yeah. Yeah. Um, might be more interesting yeah. <laughs> come on over <laughs> um, getting out and seeing you know there's a lot of building going on in DeKalb where uh, Atlanta's one of those cities that tears down everything and rebuilds stuff and, and getting out and seeing what's going on just a couple shifts ago I was on 
a gas leak in a strip mall that's going up. And I had a question because some of the, uh, it's all, you know, iron and, and uh, they had metal studs in all the exterior walls. And I had some questions about it, pulled the, the contractor over and said, hey, you know, explain this to me. Why is this like this? And learned some stuff about the building that I had no idea of. And I consider myself pretty up on construction. But within five minutes of conversation with this guy, has got some really good information. You know, it'll change. You know, if a car runs through this strip mall, the front of this strip mall, it's going to change completely what I think about how the building's going to behave. All right. So just get out talking to those people. And we've got a lot of crews doing that. I mean, I'm, I'm yeah. actually impressed with the crews that are out there in their territories really getting involved in their territories, right. which Absolutely. is what they should do. Absolutely. You're responsible for that territory. You should know everything there is to know about that territory. Now, what you, and, the, and the thing, you know, if you want to do the, you know, the, for lack of better words, the us against them mentality, you know, building departments and codes and ordinances are not written to protect firefighters. They're written right. to make building uh, bring new jobs, new money, new residents to the county or city, wherever you live. So when you see a five-story condominium complex stick framed with wood, uh, those were, by the time I retired, and if you look in Los Angeles, and I think there was one in New Jersey, they could see that those things burning from outer space. So, uh, you know, that's a pretty big fire. Um, so every time I rode by one of those, in the cab, I thought, you know, what are we going to do when that catches on fire? I think Atlanta had a couple of them. Yeah. And There's one down on Peachtree Street that burned about 10 years ago that was... Really so how that way. stuff gets approved is beyond me, um, but you know, it's not to the benefit of the firefighting community, for sure. Right. All right. Um, we asked you to come with a prepared war story. Mm -hmm. And the, the idea for our listeners behind this is... and. Shane mentioned it on the last podcast. There's a book called Extreme Ownership out, uh, Extreme Ownership out there, written by a Navy SEAL. And uh, I, I, like I said, I, I cringe when I see Navy SEAL on the front of a book, just because I think it kind of you got a secret organization that suddenly is spilling all of its guts. I, you know, I don't, I, I question the motives, but uh, the uh, authors, Jocko Willink and uh, Leif Babin, in the preface of the book, talk about how there is a, you know that culture of war stories within the SEAL community, just like in firefighting, and that every war story starts with, uh, for them, so there I was, knee-deep in grenade pins. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah. So, <laughs> so <laughs> with the cab, you know, some of, some of the stories that you've told over the years seem kind of unbelievable, but, you know, it's uh, it's not knee-deep in grenade pins. This might be, yeah. real... It's neat. Here I was, knee deep in two and a half inch and three quarters, and <laughs> I had a uh, two and a half in each hand and, and a, a pickhead axe in my mouth. You know, um, for, for every success story, there's some some ridiculously dumb thing I probably did at some point. Um, you know, a bad example would be a split level single family dwelling, which for some reason over the years causes us major issues or seem to. To me, um, I end up on the, the first engine and myself, and I'll say his name because in the history of DeKalb County, he's one of the top five best firefighters. It'd be hard to name a best, but Gary Helton is uh, one hell of a firefighter. He and I end up on the line. I'm, I'm pulling hose for him. and We crawl about 10 feet inside this uh, 
split level home, real heavy smoke showing. Another thing back in back in the day, we and some of my old guys will disagree with this. We didn't do three sixties, not like we do now. No, at all. Even when and, we came uh, on, that was still kind of a new. And that's twenty years. So. Well, and we that's an entirely different discussion. Right. I think it takes. We've talked about this uh, teaching class and and just on the side, but. How long, and that's actually where I want the conversation to go after you get done with the, the war story of how long it takes for an organization to adopt change, major change. Oh, God, yeah. Well, that is another yeah, another topic. But anyway, me and Gary, we crawl in this house and just extreme heat. And, you know, everybody talks about, you know, and every time I, I hear a firefighter say, well, I was caught in a flash over this, you know, I'm always kind of skeptical of that. And, and this was as close as I came. And Gary and I, crawled in this house and we were only in about 10 or 12 feet straight stretch and uh, what we didn't know is the entire bottom floor uh, uh, half the top floor and, and the, the split level section were just blowing fire out the back and had extreme uh, fire conditions and so we go in the front with an inch and three quarter and uh, because that's what you do because that's what we did <laughs> and uh Gary opens the nozzle up, and I hear the water, and I can hear Gary, and he's he's doing his He-Man, He-Man from Southern thing, and uh, it's just getting hotter and hotter, and I keep getting lower and lower, and by this time, I'm my shoulder's right against his back. He's on his knees. He's got the nozzle wide open, and I can literally, and now at this point, I got my shoulder on the ground, and my helmet is basically on his ass. <laughs> Excuse my language, and uh, I literally see flames rolling up the side of my arm, and I'm going, "This is bad. This cannot be right." I said, "You know, I think I said Gary, let's go." And so we backed out the front door, and other crews are arriving, and uh, we regroup. And we come up with this great plan that we're going to do the exact same thing again. Because <laughs> this time, because <laughs> this time it's going to work. This time, we're actually going to go in 10 or 12 feet, open the nozzle, and put the fire out. <laughs> so we crawl in 10 or 12 feet. We open the nozzle up. And uh, lo and behold, we got run out again. Uh, <laughs> the second floor collapsed into the first floor. Uh, my brand new leather helmet was uh, melted around my head. <laughs> But I was the man. Yeah. You know, we did, we did it. We were in there doing it. And uh, so, uh, anyway, uh, Gary, appreciate you letting me use you on that. Um, a good war story. Uh, as a chief officer, we uh, went to, as OK said, a business name. Oh, yeah. Superior Crane on Moreland Avenue one morning, uh, midnight or so. And I was actually Battalion 3. Um, I always kind of wanted to get to the fire first as a chief officer. I wanted to get there and assess it. Nothing worse than being an instant commander that arrives at the very end of, of the assignment. You know, you're the last unit there and things are going to crap. That's one of the worst worst times to arrive. I mean, it's good that you maybe you can get there and lend some clarity and get things going in the right direction if you can. But I always like to get there first. So I'm driving pretty fast down the morning avenue. All the dispatch sound like there's probably something to it. Engine 10 gets there. They're right down the road. They get there pretty quick and Captain... Does a good job. Does a good size up. It's about a two hundred thousand square foot metal building. Heavy smoke showing, and so when I get there, I'm the second unit there. I can't even see the building. And uh, engine ten parks in a, a really good spot, and they, you know they, they know where the hydrant is, and they're getting water supply, and you know, they're going to stretch a two and a half. And I'm trying to do a drive around, but the building doesn't, doesn't let you. So I park, and I'm on foot. 
anybody that knows me, of course, I don't have my turnout pants on. I got my coat open. I've got my helmet on, but the strap's over the top of it. And so at about my recollection, one or two o'clock in the morning, I'm walking around the, the B side. Engine 10's probably six, 700 yards away. I'm by myself. I'm looking at this huge warehouse on fire and uh, significant flame, metal, yeah, whole bit. And uh, an explosion occurs. And uh, it's the only time in my career. And that's what's so funny is I'm by myself. Okay. <laughs> you know, it raises my helmet up off my head. <laughs> you know, I don't know. And I'm like, holy cow, you know. Like, holy cow, anybody that knows me, that's, that's not what I said. And, uh, I remember keying the mic up and thinking, now's an is important time to sound good and be calm. So I said something to the effect of, you know, we've just had a large explosion. You know, everybody, we're going we're gonna to approach this methodically and carefully. That's probably not the exact words I said, but that was so funny because one of the biggest, you know, the biggest boom, the biggest explosion, and I'm there by myself. And uh, But anyway, the good part of the story is, is everybody that responded that night um, really did a fantastic job. And I was, at that time, uh, I had uh, nine, I think it was nine captains in the battalion, and seven of them were brand new. And uh, just really great jam up people. And and we basically just opened the roll-up doors and confined the fire to one end of the building. And, and it just went like clockwork. It went fantastic. And uh, I was really proud of that. Um, everybody's so, not everybody, so many firefighters are, are get excited and, and get worried about the, the warehouse, the business fires. Um, my thing always was those are, those are the easy fires. Yeah, you know, if, if why are we going to assign a, a truck company primary on a two hundred thousand square foot, you know, thirty percent involved warehouse at two o'clock in the morning? Right. There's no life safety hazard. Don't introduce our people as the life safety hazard. That was kind of always my view on it. But all the crews were under control. They understood, you know, where we were at on that, what we wanted to do. Uh, you never know what's inside these warehouses, and and after we put it out. We were going through there, and, and who knew in, in South DeKalb County that somebody would be storing a submarine? And that's <laughs> a not submarine. a joke. A submarine. Yes. Three hundred miles from the ocean. It was big. It was like a, you know, I'd say, two-person submarine or something. But um, that's you never know what you're going to find inside these buildings. And, uh, so that was that was probably one of the better war stories uh, of something that went really well. Now I've created a lot of parking lots as well. And uh, burnt some stuff, slapped to the ground, but uh, right, you know, do you sometimes they're not going to go good. Do you think that one went good because that is something that's a little bit out of the ordinary for us, and it requires a little more direction, and you got there quickly? You know, I don't, I don't, I, I'm not going to even sit here for a minute and and take control of it. What I can or take take uh, credit for it going well. I am glad, like I stated earlier, that I got there early. Uh, engine ten that night. I know those guys. I know that crew. Um, and this is this is a credit to them. They weren't going to pull an inch and three quarter and, and find the door and, and go in there. They right. recognized that this right. was much bigger than that. But what I can tell you is, and it's not just a decab thing, is there are crews that probably would have signed the first truck company primary, and probably would have found the door and you know maybe pulled a two and a half and right. gone in there. And you know it just wasn't the proper tactics, in my opinion, for that size structure for the amount of fire that was. Well, that's something there. that that. I know that you and I, when we 
teach class together, we talk a lot about um, using those residential tactics on non-residential fire, those special fires where, you know. Big believer it'll get you killed. Uh, a to Z fire, a long time ago in DeKalb. Big warehouse fire, and you were brand new battalion chief. Right? I was a brand new battalion chief, and, and um, but uh, we basically, in my opinion, somebody that's there probably disagree with me. We, we applied residential tactics to a large warehouse, and, and it was a it was as close a call as I was on to lose. We were probably two to three minutes from losing seven or eight firefighters, and I don't think that's any exaggeration whatsoever. And there were so many things, and we could talk for four hours, literally, about this call. So I say we don't do that. Okay. Um, but uh, ultimately, you know, it was recognized that the the, the the tactics we were employing were not going to work. Right. And so we moved everybody out. But it was close. It was right. close. So let's talk um, about the other aspect of what uh, what took up a lot of your time in your thirty year career, uh, which was. Assisting the department with equipment testing, uh, PPE testing, things like that, and you were kind of you kind of led the effort on testing of SCBA uh, a few years ago. Actually, it's more than a few years now, isn't it? Yeah, it's been a minute. Uh, maybe ten years. I'd rather deny all this at this point, but uh, <laughs> I guess since I'm here now, and I'm I think it's important to it. talk about, and it it's because there were things that happened that I don't disagree with any of the way it happened. The results are not actually what, what we wanted in the end, uh, but looking at the process and what you guys did to determine which SCBA to recommend to the department, I don't find any flaws with it. And I'm pretty critical sometimes. <laughs> yeah, that was a real bad time with the, in reference to the SCBA. It was <laughs> probably the most... Uh, adversity. Oh, boy, you better stop me. Uh, I, I, I went through some adversity during my career. This was probably one of the, the worst times. And What do you mean by adversity? Uh, Accusations uh, from... Yeah, from oh, there's all sorts of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Sure. I mean, I'll, I'll get into it. But, you know, real, real long story short, I was lucky when I made captain. Uh, Mike Peer was a deputy chief back then, just a great guy. And he saw something in me. I don't know. Uh, he passed away, very unfortunately. Um, he saw something in me, so he basically started volunteering me for stuff. And the, the immature Marty was like, you know, I actually got a letter from him that said, you're going to help us on this committee. And I'm like, why is he picking on me? And that was my attitude. That's how stupid I was. And this guy's trying to help me. You know? Well, he's and, trying to help the department, too, and, uh, because he went to somebody that knows what they're doing. Well, I don't know if he knew that then, but well, uh, he I, knew something I, I didn't know. So anyway, so that's what led into all this. And we had some very successful tests. And and uh, Chief Desham, who is obviously now retired, had a very methodical way. And we actually had to go through an eight-hour class with him on how to test equipment. Right. You know, what was... Uh, legal what's the word i'm looking for um measurable, appropriate right. measurable yeah so fair to, right. to the product and the vendors and so because these guys the, the if anybody hadn't been involved in this kind of stuff 
The vendors get very, very protective. Oh, let me tell you. And they yeah. are, they'll, they'll stand Absolutely. around and watch you evaluate somebody else's equipment and point out all the ways Absolutely. that, you know, right. you take out exactly. Which departments are buying their gear, right. why, you know. Uh, yeah, it's it's very interesting to say the least. Um, wow, it brings back a lot of memories. But we had some very successful tests, and they're all done in a methodical manner, and we would choose different uh, people from across the department to help do these tests. They were given the class on what, you know, what these are the questions that are appropriate to ask. This is how we're going to test the gear, uh, boots, gloves, turnout gear, thermometers. You know, we had a bunch of very successful tests. So it came time to do SCBAs and you know, the, the leading manufacturer, I'm sure it's leading manufacturer. It always had a, a really quality product and you know, we trusted it very much in, in the cab. And, uh, so we started testing, and another company came in, and you know, I can remember vividly, we had, I think, four other people on the, on the, that was actually going to test the SCB, it was actually wear them, and almost unanimously, it was, I don't even know why we're doing this, this is a waste of time, because we're going to go with right. what we've got, you know, they've served us well, and, and, you know, absolutely they had, and what I can tell you is, we went to the fire academy and we tested the other air pack that we went with. And uh, within two hours, some of those same guys were going, "Wow, right, man, this is this is pretty good. I'm I'm surprised. Look at these features. Look at what this well, can do. Look it, at what that if can I remember really, it had features that were somewhat new. Absolutely, it was, yeah. You know, it was it was brand new, shiny technology that yeah. you know this is way different than what we've got. Right, right. Um, and I can tell you that. That we beat the hell out of those air packs, right? And because so, there's Marty Green is not interested in putting a defective or oh, a, a, a substandard yeah. SCBA. Yeah. You're talking yeah. about somebody who's at you know one of the busiest fire stations. You know, running uh, how many calls did you say you were running around that uh, time? You'd be what three three thousand yeah, a year, three thousand calls a year. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know. Marty Green has a definite interest in making sure Absolutely. that the SCBA that's on his back is going to work. Right. Absolutely. You know, a lot of people can say a lot of things about me, but the, the one ultimate thing I do care about is the firefighters. Um, so we tested, and, and lo and behold, we made the recommendation to go with this new air pack. And nothing in my career has ever backfired worse than that. Uh, I was accused by some of my friends of getting a kickback. Right. Uh, I was, you know, well, and that, what, those, you know, that criticism didn't come immediately, right? No, no, it just swelled, man. You know, it, after the failures, we we had some man. some failures of the SCBA, yeah, in and, in yeah. real world situations, yeah. And that was when that criticism really started to ratchet up. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, uh, just and so when I say adversity, I, I'm not turning this into you know poor me, but what I can do is say that you know, and sometimes that you can do things in a manner which is appropriate and right and with all the best intentions with all the best intentions and boom it blows up in your right. face right uh, i'm just very glad that ultimately we didn't get anybody we had several close calls right but nobody was seriously injured and uh, once that's that's gotta i mean that's gotta hit you in the gut absolutely especially when some of those people that were being critical are the people that i would imagine you respected, they respected you. Yeah, and yeah, and that, that was the kick. I mean, that was the, the whole thing about it. And, you know, to think that, uh, for anybody to actually think I would take money 
um, to do that. You know, I, I won't even say it hurt me. That just pissed me off. Right. You know. Was it something easy for them to say because they were upset, or do you really think deep down? I think down it's emotional. They, you know, there's nothing more, well, nothing more emotional. Firefighters can be very emotional, to say the least. Right. So when, when they believe that you're uh, messing with their their lives, their safety, you know, that's when it's it turns into more or less a pack mentality. I've you know, I've never found myself, and never did again find myself being outside the pack. You know, normally I was I was in the pack saying, "What are you doing? Why are we buying these trucks? Why right. are we buying, you know, this hose? Why are we doing this? Why are we doing that?" And this this time I ended up, you know, the point. You know, you right. you led this. You picked these. And it's interesting yeah. that they, you know, because you said Chief Chime was kind of in charge of the whole thing. So there were other players, but they keyed up on Chief, you. And I, I need to say this: Chief was uh, he did not play a role. And recommending that air pack, right? Not at all. But he, he says, he said, right. "You're going to get this group up. Here's how we're going to do it. Right. Here's right. the method in which we're going to do it." And he 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 told me flat out, and people wouldn't believe this. He said, "You pick." He said, "Whatever y'all recommend, that's what we're going with." Right. And so I was accused one time of taking kickbacks. You know, I don't want to speak for anybody else, but you know, there was. You know, Next question. Okay. That's enough about that. Yeah. Uh, not no offense. No, I mean, but it's you know it's one of those things, and it's yeah. uh, well, you know, it's what? there's good stuff that on Marty's, you know, equipment detail that he was very very. Oh, absolutely. I mean, our absolutely. our attack line right now, I can't even begin to tell you what a positive impact that's made on. Oh, the engine seven eights. That yeah. is a huge. <laughs> I'm telling you, that is making a difference. The two end? It is. It's a it's a huge difference. And but you you were there. What you're we instrumental were instrumental before. You know, we put that in place. When when did that testing happen? And when did we get the combat ready? Oh, man, that's been. A I was a captain. So 2004 or five. Okay, so we're talking well over right. ten years. Well over ten years, the cab fire rescue decides after. Testing with your group that involved firefighters from across the department because we like to we like to do that to get everybody involved to say hey this was a, a group effort this is the hose we're going to go to here's why you made classes on it yeah you know we, what I forgot about all the grief I caught about the hose too you caught a lot of grief about the hose yeah. and here's the going downhill hey Paul here's the kicker so the whole thing you know. Ten years ago, this hose goes on the truck. Ten years ago, the department says, we are no longer using the red hose. You know, we had red inch and three-quarter. Red hose is trash line now. Basically, you can have it in the well on the, you know, underneath the pump panel if you got a trash fire. But your attack lines are this uh, inch and seven-eighths combat-ready hose, and that's what we're going with. And ten years later, uh, on one of my fires, you show up, and as it's winding down, you come over to me and you go, this unit has red hose on the cross leg. What's going on? <laughs> and I remember thinking, red hose? Where did that come from? <laughs> yeah, and I, of course, I didn't say dog on it, because like you, if anybody knows, knows that those weren't the words that came out of my mouth. But it was, you know, I, I had no answer. I hadn't noticed it. But the guys on the truck... And they hadn't put it on them themselves. They, they, they didn't put the hose on there themselves. They had gotten a truck that was in reserve status. 
It was passed to them at the shift change. They saw the red hose and went, yeah, that's okay. Right. So 10 years. How does that happen? Exactly. 10 years into an organizational change, and we still don't have 100% buy-in from everybody. And, and does it require everybody in the organization that was there the way it was before retiring and leaving the organization before we get to where? Because I guarantee you some of those people are going to go, well, you know what, we fought a lot of. We fought a lot of fire with that red hose and put a lot of fire out with that red hose. That red hose is just as good as the blue and the orange, and I don't care what they say. And they make all the rules they want, but, you know. Right. Right. I mean, that that kind of organizational change is ridiculously hard to... Well, the other other type of change is is somebody's uh, one crew pulled a booster line on a house fire, so we're going to take all booster lines off every truck we have, and that'll solve that problem. You know, I'm a firm believer in giving the firemen the option uh, every tool that they can use and then training them and trusting them to, to right. act appropriately make not, not to limit um, so yeah the question was about organizational change and yeah. we've all had this discussion I, I don't know how you do it I mean I've I've beat my head against the wall and you know what's the best way to do this but you know really you can't you can't put it on paper and make it happen no. it's, it's a matter of buying it's a matter of Spending the time, and it's it's more than just a two-hour class on here's the new hose. You and know, it, it requires buy-in from the top, but yeah. that doesn't ensure success. You've got to have buy-in across the ranks, right? And and not just by everybody, uh, or or just you know a, a scattering of firefighters. It's got to be key players, right? And even your buy-in on your you know your recommendations sometimes didn't save you from criticism. Didn't move that that uh, that change forward as fast as we would have liked you know right well in the buy-in you know in a, in a department with 700 members the buy-in is, is so you can't expect one person to reach 699 so you know in, in this case it would you know it was bought in by the, the chief because he he allowed the host to be ordered right um, the deputy chief said okay we're going to put it on the trucks um Car seven said, "All right, but the hands rotate your crews through, and we're putting this new hose on the truck." So everybody went to class. So the buy-in has to be almost like a pyramid out, and it, and it has to be consistent. So if you get down over here, I got so many people's names going through my mind right now. But if you get down to this battalion, and the chief could care less whether the you know there's hose on the truck or not, right? His battalion's not going to buy in. That's he might why, have that's a couple think- of exceptional captains. Right. That are concerned, you know, hey, this hose is too big, you know, we're flowing too much water, you know, whatever the argument may be. So so the buy-in has to be on a personal one-on-one level. And so when you don't have... I uh, think the battalion chiefs are responsible for that that cultural change. I'm going to be honest with you. I think they I have think a lot of part, impact on it. I think the station officer ultimately, because they're the ones on the front line, they're the ones with their crews, protecting their crews, I think but, it lies with those station officers to say, you know what, you know, whether it's asking their battalion chief, hey, you know, we don't like this. Why is this this I say they're influenced by their battalion chief ultimately. Positive or negatively. Right. Right. Which we're getting this could go a whole different direction right now. It goes whatever direction it needs to go. Well if you have boy, I don't know. (laughs) If you have captains and chiefs officers that don't give a crap. Right. About firefighting tactics and, and hose and nozzles and SCBAs, 
how are they going to get a battalion to buy in? Right. How's that going to happen? So that's how you end up ultimately, 10 years after the fact, with red hose. You know, the, the county deemed that a safety issue. Right. You know, so how does a red hose get back on the truck? Complacency. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's an entirely different subject for a different... Well, yeah, and you know, and, and you, said, you said that was your battalion. Well, I, well, I know you. Yeah. But I can't expect you to go and inspect every rig in your battalion every shift. No, you know, it, every know. level of supervision assumes that the people that are under them are doing their job. Right. And, you know, I've, I've often described my role... Uh, as a supervisor, whether it was a specifically at a battalion chief level at this point, as being very similar to the uh, the old timey cars at Six Flags, you know, you got the car and there's the rail that runs down the middle of the road, and the car can only get so far to the left before it's going to hit that rail, and I'm the rail. You're going to do what you're going to do at the station level, and then I'm going to go. Nope. Okay, that's not okay. We're going to knock you back to the right, and then you're going to keep going that way until you hit the rail again, and you know, it's keeping keeping things in lane, you know, where yeah. it's not getting too far out of control, but I, I'm not there to micromanage. That's my opinion. No, I don't want us to be that way either. And, and we've talked about this and we've kind of talked about the change in the goalpost thing, but I think our jobs are to define the sidelines. Absolutely. Period. Yeah. Here's the field I need you to play in. Absolutely. Right. Here are my expectations. Here's, you know, here's what right. we're going to do. Um, but yeah, you know, checking trucks out or, or, or going behind people and, and making sure that they're dotting every I and crossing every T and stuff like that gets, right. where does it end? Well, I don't know. You know, you hold people accountable and, you know, we can all have specific examples of, of how that goes. Right. I don't know really want to bring up bald tires, but, you know, um, there I just yeah, brought it up. being picked on now. Yeah. No, 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 no. No, that, as a matter of fact, that was I really don't want to go there. <laughs> um, Once again, <laughs> anyway, anyway, yeah. But it's it's not a you know we we've taught a class uh, on the fire in Charleston for many years. Um, the main point of that whole class of eight hours is basically that complacency is the most dangerous thing that we can do, whether it's the fact that a booster reel is going to put your fire out or that the residential tactics are what we need to use right now and whatever, you know, it's, it's, it always comes back to that complacency and it's so easy to fall into. Yes. You get pissed off. Somebody does something, whatever, you get pissed off. Now you're a pissed off battalion chief. You're a pissed off station officer. You're a pissed off fire. I used to wonder how, when I was a young firefighter, some of those crotchety, old, mean-ass firefighters in the station, I used to wonder, how did they get that way? Right. And that happened to you. Yeah, yeah. Who beat you up that made you like this? You know, the ones that are telling you, the rookie, shut up, Marty. You know, Um, there was one at a station that I would, fill in at every once in a while that I was absolutely terrified of. I mean, just terrified that he was going to even look in my direction for it. You know? Um, yeah, I had a tire <laughs> battalion full back in the day. You know, <laughs> this whole crew, you know, I used to hate to run with 19 because they just, you know, I was like, it was like blood in the water when I came around. <laughs> you know, uh, I can't even repeat. I, I don't know if I could 
this was X-rated if I could repeat half the stuff they said to me. <laughs> but anyway. Uh, well, I'm uh, pulling up our, our pivot questions. I'm unprepared because if some of you have seen how we do this podcast, it's tubes with iPhones in it. And guess where the pivot questions are? On the iPhones. Oh, <laughs> in the tube. So I'm pulling them up on the computer. <laughs> It's very high tech setup. It is. This is <laughs> like the way this is laid out. You're really impressed. <laughs> um, it's going to take a second, but um, golly, Shane, say something. Golly, I don't, I don't know. Is this how you thought this was going to go? Yeah, it's just like just like just like breakfast. sitting around talking, like having breakfast. Yeah. yeah, and that's kind of what we you know that when we try to think about developing this podcast that's what we wanted you know we wanted yeah. table call type table kitchen talk yeah that's I, where I, the learning I, happens you know i don't know how very comfortable conversation i don't know how many people will find it interesting but it's definitely the you know it's not, some it's, will some will it's very <laughs> unscripted it's kind of yeah um kind of just goes let me ask you this while we're waiting for the computer to pull up now i'm not trying to tug on any hard strings or anything like that what do you miss most about it? you've been out of it for nine months now uh-huh. yeah I know I've been able to see the, the positive that it's had on you. You know, you're yeah, right. healthier. Right. You talk about getting sleep right. after 30 years, oh, that kind gosh. of stuff. Yeah, which but brings up a whole other topic. What do you miss? Uh, the camaraderie of, of, you know, waking up at 2.30 in the morning and receiving several calls and, you know, listening to and, watching our people get there and, and do great work and um, that type of thing. Uh, that's the thing I miss. You know, I miss the smell of a structure fire. It's ridiculous as that sound, but it, it sounds, it has a certain smell. Absolutely. I miss that smell. We smelled it a few times yesterday, by the way. Now, all that with a grain of salt, I will tell you, 28 years is probably enough. I, I like think I you're feel, probably. I, right. I don't feel like I left anything out there, right? Um, as far as missing anything, you didn't come to the fire service with any goals. Did you? Did no. you develop goals as you were during your career? No. I mean, no, no. I'd probably be do a good job looking at being a fire chief somewhere else if I had any goals. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and there's that. <laughs> um. <laughs> all you aspiring fire chiefs out there, make sure you've got all your school. Um, well, no, I say that seriously. You, yeah, that's fine. I, I, I get that. because I know we've talked. You know, there, there there are some things that you said you'd do different if you had it to do all over again. Sure, but at the same time, everything you listed off that I was a part of. You know, I take great pride in teaching the AOIC class as much as I did. I do take pride in testing the equipment. Um, that just led to some things that, that probably I would rather not happen. Well, there, were, but, there, there was unintended consequences that came with it, but ultimately, well, I think you did. Let me just say, the let me just say my point is this, and everybody probably has their own reasons. I'm not telling you I had foresight. I'm not telling you that um, me teaching AOIC class or tech, testing equipment was how my career was supposed to go, but I did it. And I didn't dedicate. And I'm not even saying that I didn't have time. Right. You know, I was doing construction work on my off days. Right, right. You know, I could have made the time to have the formal education required to uh, to pursue 
chief job. No doubt about it. That all lies 100% on my shoulders. You know, maybe just maybe if I had, maybe I don't do some of that stuff. Right. Who knows? I don't right. know. And I feel like some of that stuff was, was a, a benefit. So, you know, it's, uh, it is what it is. You talked at one point about um, the experience you had going out to San Diego. Sure. Yeah. And uh, getting out and. Yeah, you need to get outside your department. You know, if you're if you're a firefighter, especially when you when you get uh, we talked about maturing, when you get to the point where you're maturing and you're realizing there's other fire departments out there, you need to get outside your department and go and look and see how other departments operate. You might be shocked to find out all the things that your department does very well. Right. Right. And so get out. You know, go take classes. Go. You know, volunteer to go if you're capable to to give a driver's test and. In Birmingham, volunteer to do that stuff. Get outside. Absolutely, the other every it's bit, every huge. opportunity, whether it's from a driver engineer perspective, captain's perspective. Right. We talked about this yesterday. Getting involved in the National Fire Academy. Get outside the department. Absolutely, because and you're I gonna never did that. You're gonna make yourself feel a lot better. First of all, it, it actually does. It you're really going does. to realize that man, there are a lot of other things going on in this country well, at the fire department level. You end up. Feeling better about some things that, boy, I thought I had it bad, but right. look at what they got going on over there. But then there's also a, a, a level of camaraderie where yep. everybody in the room turns out is having the exact same problem in their right. department. Sure. Exact issues. Yeah. And whether it's that, you know, I always use the example, uh, and I can't remember his name, but from Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. First, first class I took at the National Fire Academy a few years ago, we had somebody in the room from Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. Uh, you know, which I believe was like a volunteer department of 14 people. And he's got the same problem our 700-person department in DeKalb County running 100,000 calls a year has, which just blew me away, you know. Right. But the problem was no less severe for him. Right. And it probably it was actually more severe because instead of a pool of 700 people to deal with, he's only got 14. One of them leaves and doggone it, you know. I mean, right. <laughs> he's that much worse off. Um. Yeah, getting out and doing that kind of stuff is uh super important. I think even if you don't have any aspirations of, of doing anything with the fire service after a career with a specific department, it just makes you a better firefighter. Well, the uh, computer's not cooperating, so we're just going to do this by uh, by memory. How about that? Yeah. Shane, you got a look of dread on your face. No, I'm good. <laughs> it's being with me again, isn't it? In front of us, and yeah, but I was like this be known that uh, Bill Voorhees is the moderator yeah, on this one. Not that prepared. <laughs> I told you I wasn't going to say that. We're not prepared. Uh, I don't know what's going on with my computer, but it's just well, we can remember some of these questions. Yeah, you know, the um, first one, yeah, the first one is uh. What is your what is your favorite thing to hear on a fire scene? Under control. Under control. All right. What's your least favorite thing to hear on a fire scene? Anything screamed into a radio. Ooh. Anybody screaming? Ooh. Good one. <laughs> you want to? I know you want to ask him more about this. No, I don't. You don't? No. Really? Go ahead. Why? Why don't you like people screaming? It gets everybody else crazy. And, and it, you know, why are you screaming? And. You all know the firefighter. 
that gets mad when they get on a fire scene. Yeah. And they start yelling and they that start emotion. screaming. Yeah. And it's, why are you so emotional? And, you know, the one thing I always loved to do was to try to be the calmest person on the fire scene. And I think you get a much better reaction out of that. You know? So anybody screaming on a fire scene is, <laughs> and I hate the term pet peeve. I, just, I don't like the way it right. sounds. Right. I don't like anything about it. But if That's I have a pet peeve, all the time around you. don't scream <laughs> into the radio. Why are you screaming? You know, if you're on fire, okay, scream. Yeah. I'm okay with that. Um, but, uh, but now, one of the examples you use all the time is of people screaming, we need, you know, we need more hose. We, you know, we, we need, need more water. We need more water. Why are you in there with an uncharged hose line? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. I didn't, I, I want to go here. Yeah. I just want to say yeah. something. I, uh, you were by no means screaming and you and I've had this conversation. Oh, here we go. But I remember specifically <laughs> going to a fire scene with Chief Green. No, hold on. Are you going to describe the fire scene? Um, most most people are not going to encounter this I'll in their career. This is, this is uh, one apartment complex that had three. Oh my goodness! Burning three wow. separate entire apartment yes. buildings burning inside out. in the complex. The one I, and and chief, your hands are full. I know they are. I pull up on this one building with you that literally looks like a freaking volcano is going across <laughs> to the business next to us, you know. And I'm thinking, you know what? I'm going to make him feel better. Shane's going to add some, some calm. I'm going to get so calm. And uh, I remember looking at you and saying, you know, we, we got this. We'll, we'll get. And you gave me this. I called Bill afterwards. So I was like, I may have actually pissed him off this time. And uh, like, are you freaking kidding me right now? Just a look. Just a very calm look from uh, what I heard. I didn't scream though, right? No, you were not screaming, but I could tell we were getting screaming. We were getting to the top of, we were getting close to full <laughs> of what was going on here. Well, that was and, right uh, after I had to get the guy out of the building. Yeah. Again, and we had firefighters that. Clearly not listening. Yeah, we were having to deal with that, and uh, so, uh, but yeah, I tried to help that out that stuff, day. Yeah. It didn't work out so good. <laughs> I left it with you as soon as I could. Yeah, <laughs> I rolled up to uh, Chief Corey's fire. Uh, yeah, <laughs> got a flat tire on yeah, the way. Right, that was one that I wish I had again. Over the over again. Oh, yeah, I've got a couple of, of them like that. Yeah, yeah. So we should get a clear list. delete on that one. <laughs> All right, sidetracked. Um. What motivates you? Uh, just same reason I want to get to the fire first. I want to, I want to try and take care of our firefighters. Okay. That's 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 what motivates me. Keeping everybody safe. That realization that you know ultimately, if you if you're a firefighter long enough, if 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 you respond to fires, if you go inside burning structures, something bad is bound to happen. Right, and it's that level of I'll say scared. It's my level of, of scared for the firefighter's safety that kept me motivated. Absolutely. And, you know, little sidebar, one thing that would make me mad on a fire scene was any sort of complacency, any sort of, you know, when you pull up and you see smoke pushing out of the floor system and firefighters coming out saying, you know, 
fires up. It's under control. We got it. No, you don't. <laughs> no, you don't. Um, look over there. Look that at that this. seems like one of those moments where you would have pulled them close, put your arm around their, their shoulder, and very calmly went, here's what I'm seeing. Yeah, you know, yelling at me. That's Marty Green. If you yell at somebody, you know, they're you're gonna, right. they're going to wig out. So if you need them to do something, you know, hey, listen. I think you get a better better result. Right. No, I agree. All right. If you didn't spend thirty years in the fire department, uh, if you know you were doing construction before, what would your dream job have been? I want to be the person that puts the umbrellas and beach chairs out in the morning, <laughs> and then seven hours you sit on the beach, and then you work the last hour of the day. <laughs> Put them all up. That's my dream job. <laughs> you can actually pull that off right now. You know, I was thinking about it. The regulations. I've actually checked. Them. <laughs> there's an age requirement. You got to bid that uh, stuff. Yeah, you got to bid it year to year. You got to pay the the condominium complex for the rights to do it. Oh, and oh so that is actually a job. That's a pretty good one. All right. Well, our. our Second to last question is uh, one about retirement, which we're actually past that point for you. But uh, the question to everybody is, what would you want written on your cake at your retirement party? That's that's good. I, you know, I don't know. I mean, it'd be more like a phrase, but it would probably be something to the effect of, you know, he cared about us and worked as hard as he could. Something to that effect. Right. You know, and I think most people would go, you know. So, yeah, I tried to take care of the firefighters. Okay. Because they're, they're the ones that count. They're the, they're the most important part of the machine. Well, I think you did. Well, for sure. I, I do, too. I Thank think you, you did. Yeah. You're probably, you have more of an impact than you probably realize. Well, I appreciate it. That's important. So. Huge impact. Um, all right, last question. Um, if you were a boxer, which... You're actually a uh, let's let's change this to your forte. Uh, you've been doing karate for a few years. If you're entering the ring for a big match, mm-hmm. what song do you want played as you're entering the ring? Mm, that's pretty good. Uh, one of two. No. Um, Rob Zombie's Dragula. I'm not familiar at all, but as great, soon as we stop, I'm looking it up. It just like it just builds and it's just a fast pace. Okay. Thing. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I don't know what the words are, but that's just that <laughs> I'm so surprised that Bill has not heard of it, to be perfectly honest with you. Music guru, movie guru. Or Drowning Pool, Let the Bodies Hit the Floor. Okay, those are two songs I'd like to look up. Don't know that one either? No. That one's on my run list. Yeah, yeah. Well, tell me it doesn't get your blood. Oh, blood. yeah, that's the one like when you just right, you're oh, dragging man. a little bit, and I want to put yeah, a little extra in you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. I like it. <laughs> All right. Well, that usually signals the end of our uh, of our conversation. Is Thanks. there anything anybody? No. Thank you. Uh, we really appreciate it. Um, anything you want to add, Shane? No, I think it was good. I think it was good. I'm glad we. You know, I was excited about doing this and sitting down with with Chief again. A lot of fun. I appreciate it. Miss having him around a lot. Yeah, miss him. We appreciate you listening, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks.
everybody's situated with what they want. I think. There you go. <coughs> there you go. The arsonist. <laughs> Sibilance. The arsonist. Sibilance. <laughs> How now, brown gal? <laughs> the arsonist was denied a bank loan. <laughs> okay. <laughs>